Between the Covers is brought to you in part through the support of Propeller, a magazine of books, music, art, film, and life, and its publishing imprint, Propeller Books. Visit them on the web at propellermag.com and propellerbooks.com or on Twitter at PropellerMag. Before we begin today's program, I wanted to talk briefly about a past guest, Jesse Ball, and an offer he has made to listeners on behalf of the program. I suspect many of you know who Jesse Ball is since he was recently a guest on Between the Covers and yet is already the second most listened to episode of all time. If you don't know him, you should definitely check out our conversation and explore his work. Jesse Ball sent me copies of his 2006 book that he co-wrote with the Icelandic poet and novelist Thordis Björnstadir called Vera and Linus to offer as gifts for people who support the Between the Covers Patreon campaign. Vera and Linus is a gorgeous object, full of illustrations, and made with care by an Icelandic small press. The story is composed of a mixture of what could be called prose poetry, flash fiction, and sketches, and Publishers Weekly says of Vera and Linus, the light touch and often archaic feel of the prose owes as much to Kafka as to classic fairy tales. Certainly, many readers will find this book unsettling, but most will also find it hard not to remember a time when the world was filled with this kind of fearful mystery and wonder. Vera and Linus is out of print. The Icelandic publisher no longer exists, so this is a rare memento. For people who are not already supporters of the program, if you begin ongoing support of the show at $2 an episode through Patreon, that is patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash between the covers, you can receive a copy of Vera and Linus. If you're already a supporter, either via PayPal or Patreon, you likewise can get a copy by increasing your support by $1 an episode, or if you're a PayPal supporter, beginning a Patreon support at $1 an episode. Again, this is at patreon.com slash between the covers. Enjoy today's program. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is poet and essayist Morgan Parker. Parker is the author of the poetry collection Other People's Comfort Keeps Me Up at Night from Switchback Books, which was selected by Eileen Miles for the 2013 Gatewood Prize and was a finalist for the Poetry Society of America's Norma Farber First Book Award. Parker received her bachelor's degree in anthropology and in creative writing from Columbia University and her MFA in poetry from NYU. Her poetry and essays have been published and anthologized in the Paris Review, 
the Breakbeat Poets New American Poetry in the Age of Hip-Hop, Best American Poetry 2016, The New York Times, and The Nation. Parker is the recipient of a 2017 National Endowment of the Arts Literature Fellowship, winner of a 2016 Pushcart Prize, and she is a Kavakanam Graduate Fellow. She's also an editor for Day One and Little A, and the creator and host of Reparations Live at the Ace Hotel in New York. She also co-curates with Tommy Pico, the Poets with Attitude reading series, and with Angel Nafis, she is the Other Black Girl Collective. She is here today to talk about her new collection just out from Tin House Books entitled There Are More Beautiful Things Than Beyonce. Publishers Weekly in its starred review calls the book an homage to the deep roots and collective wisdom of black womanhood. Poet D.A. Powell quotes Gwendolyn Brooks, who said, art hurts and art urges voyages. Powell says, Morgan Parker's poems hurt deeply and voyage widely. They do not let you sit comfortably and idly and safe, but take you on an adventure like no other. Poet Terrence Hayes calls Morgan Parker a fearlessly forward and forward-thinking literary star. Roxane Gay says every poem will get its hooks in you. And author Kiesi Lehman says there is not a more daring artist or anyone he'd rather read in the 21st century than Morgan Parker. Welcome to Between the Covers, Morgan Parker. Thank you. Hello. So Beyonce is a reoccurring figure in this collection. Yes. There are poems called Beyonce Celebrates Black History Month, Robo Beyonce, Beyonce <laughs> on the Line for Gaga, White Beyonce, Slouching Toward Beyonce, What Beyonce <laughs> Won't Say on a Shrink's Couch, and many, many more. I'm leaving many out. But you say that Beyonce in this collection is not Beyonce Knowles Carter, per se, uh, not the human being, but Beyonce as a symbol or an image mm-hmm. or a vessel to l- look at other things. Um, so I'm hoping you can talk about that, how you're employing Beyonce as a figure in, in the collection as, as a way to begin. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I always say, you know, this isn't a biography. <laughs> you know, she's not going to read this and say, yes, that is accurate. Um, it's it's really a way for me to talk about the multiplicity of black womanhood and all the different complexities and all the different people that we can be and are and perform as. Um, I wanted to write a book where I really was exploring this toad line between glamour and vulnerability, um, of performance, putting on a performance uh, in the public, uh, and also just who you are in private. Um, And so I wanted to use a celebrity uh, kind of pop figure, uh, one that we just associate with beauty and glamour and power um, and kind of trouble that and complicate it a little bit. So for all intents and purposes in the book, Beyonce is just the every black woman, you know? Um, She's me. She's my friends. I don't know if she has a shrink, but I do. So, (laughs) you know, there's a a little bit of um, not exactly persona poems, but more of picking up these different masks and there's something about inhabiting her uh, I guess identity and legacy um, that allows me to explore something beyond myself. Well I love the paradox of the fact that you're choosing one celebrity and one image essentially to uh, explore the diversity in black womanhood. Um, 
and to, to, uh, to potentially explode a static image of black mm-hmm, women. Mm-hmm. But could you tell us what that static image is in your mind? What is the static image of, of black womanhood that you're trying to complicate? Yeah, I mean, there are a couple, you know, and I, I kind of touch on some of the roots of them in the book. So thinking about the legacy of, you know, the hot and top Venus of black women on display uh, to be kind of gawked at or um, upheld as this standard. Uh, It's kind of a similar thing to Beyonce, you know? It's a little bit of both. I wanted to think about that, like the body as being consumed. And then also, you know, the stereotype of the black woman as kind of matronly and just hardworking and quiet. And um, so there are a few, you know, I think... Beyonce is the one more attached to this kind of sexual being, uh, beauty, uncomplicated. Um, And so it's that, but it's also this kind of vulnerable, uh, you know, black women are the mules of the world, that kind of thing. Um, And so I wanted to basically push those together, but then also point outwards at all the other things that we are. Um, And also talk a little bit about Um, what it feels like to know that those stereotypes exist and almost sometimes use them to your advantage, um, to acknowledge them in order to Um, self-define. It's a really complicated relationship. Um, You know, I always say, as black women, we, we start at you know, negative 100. We don't, we're not born at zero. Uh, So we have to first kind of look in the face of and then tear down lots of stereotypes and things that we've been told about ourselves and internalize about ourselves in order to really kind of figure out who we are and who we're allowing ourselves to be. Well, it's interesting also, I, I was curious in, when, in reading this that um, Beyonce, who maybe you chose as a celebrity and one person to um, as a counterbalance against this idea around diversity and exploding the static uh, image of of black women, um, she has evolved a lot. Oh yeah. So in a way, she yes. never she didn't stay the same. And I was. Cur- I think she read my poems. If that's <laughs> what you were gonna ask, <laughs> I think I spoke formation into existence. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, it's been weird, right? Like, and and. Um, a lot of folks have asked me, I mean, when Lemonade came out, this was already at the printer, you know, so I didn't, I wasn't responding to that version of her. So she's become someone wildly different uh, in the time of the writing. And, and even, you know, so I started writing these poems around the time that she was collaborating with Lady Gaga, and I kind of started with that. Um, and that was just a really, that was like three albums ago, you know, so it was a long time ago. Right. And... From there, you know, that was, like, before she and, like, the president were friends, you know? And so there was kind of that, um, which allowed me to talk about politics in a really easy way. Like, she was kind of associated. Um, and, yeah, I really do think it's it's interesting how she has evolved and how I, I really believe that, you know, the public asked for her to evolve. Um, yeah. And, you know, probably an intern showed her my poems. Just saying. (laughs) (laughs) Um. Well, when I interviewed Tayemba Jess about Mm -hmm. Olio, 
Um, oh my god, I love him. By the way, I do, I do too. I call him <laughs> Uncle. <laughs> He's got such an Uncle thing. Oh, <laughs> well, I mean, his book also centers around mm-hmm. performance yep. and black performers explicitly, and also around this conundrum of black performance, especially when um, black entertainers aren't necessarily in, um, performing for a, a, yep. a black audience. Yep. They're performing for a, an audience that. Um, in some ways, that gaze, the white mm-hmm, gaze, is mm-hmm. is something that needs to be um, uh, negotiated yep. around this idea of authenticity. Like, how do you keep your music authentic, and how do you get it heard? Um, and you- authentic to us is different, I think, than you know, the white gaze sees something and is like, oh, that's authentic black, you know, like. But that is something that's manufactured for their eyes. Yeah. Um, so, I mean. So we have this idea of the double consciousness, right? But I believe that for black women, it's like quadruple consciousness. You know, like there are a lot of different levels and layers and languages you have to speak. Can you talk, uh, for listeners who don't know what the double consciousness is, can you talk a little bit about that? Um, So that is uh, from, I think it's from the Souls of Black Folks, Du Bois, uh, writing about the kind of the way that black people in America... Um, have one mind that is them, but then also almost kind of thinking with a white mind as well. Um, And just knowing that that is, I guess, the standard in the world. So it's a way of knowing, of having to negotiate everything that you say um, and almost having to, like, translate and interpret uh, all your thoughts. Hmm. So can you tell us a little bit about the ways in which you find your poetry performative or not. And you mentioned persona poems. So I mm-hmm. was kind of curious about the eye. Mm-hmm. Is it, a st- it sounds like it maybe it isn't a stable eye. And I, I was curious if you place your poetry in a sort of a, in a more performative um, subset of poetry or, or if that's not true at all. Yeah. I don't, I don't think of it as performance. Um, I mean, I think about my existence as performative, you know, like rather, so that, I think of it, about it in that way, but I, um, in terms of reading it out loud or anything of that sort, I mean, the poems are quite personal and uh, the eye always begins with me, but I did want to kind of stretch it out a little bit uh, with the writing of this book and and also mine the parts of myself that haven't spoken before. Mm-hmm. Um, so the eye is... You know, it's me, but it isn't me, and it's parts of me that no longer exist. Uh, it's parts of me that I want to exist, um, and it's parts of me that I see in others. Uh, so, yeah, the eye is very flexible in that way. Um, but at the end of the day, they are kind of almost confessional, you know? Yeah. Well, let's have our listeners hear a couple Beyonce themed poems, specifically <laughs> Poem on Beyonce's Birthday and Beyonce in Third Person. Poem on Beyonce's birthday. Drinking cough syrup from a glass shaped like your body I wish was mine, but as dark as something in my mind telling me I'm not woman enough for these days. Colored with reddish loathing, which feels to me more significant than sun. My existence keeps going. Ripple in other people's mouths. Pools of privilege and worship. I want. I keep thinking. I am exclusively post-everything. 
Animals licking my chin, new leaves stretching from a palm plant like a man's greedy arms. Today, your open eyes are two fresh buds. Anything could be waiting. Beyonce in third person. I type Beyonce into my phone five out of seven days a week. That's because I am a woman. I'm a little unpolished behind the scenes. I am lonely, and so are all my friends. When one season of The Real Housewives closes, another one opens. New moons disappear unmagically. I am very complicated, and so is Beyonce. Dogs in their gate of privilege circle her. Snow falls for her. Shellac's windows for her. Beyonce, are you sure you're okay? I slice lemons in my quiet apartment and pile them on a step. When I think about revolution, I turn to the B-side of dangerously in love. I sequin my breasts like morning shells, teeth sucked as performance. People say things they think are true, like, I love you, and I feel in a particular way. I want to be so close and bold. In the news today, Beyonce went to brunch this weekend. Two neighborhoods over, dressed in all black. Comparing salad recipes and third-wheeling weekend dinners, dog kibble in my loafers, seducing myself in sweatpants, is not how I envision my 20s, or is it? In high school, I made a mixtape called Ladies as Pimps 2. That was long before my therapist asked about my masculinity while new buds in Riverside Park slobbered with rain. The only dream I've had all year is the one where I'm driving out of control. The brakes are shot, the landscape changes, I accelerate instead of stop. It's almost too obvious to interpret, like teeth or pomegranates or ocean. If you aren't interested in self-absorption, do not follow me on Twitter. Sometimes I think I should have been left in the incubator longer. Everyone got high levels of entitlement in our veins. We think we are owed. Everything, but especially silence. A secret is, during commercials, I am living other lives. Sautéing green vegetables, imagining spring breeze carry me through the apartment like a branch or a painter. There is no humor in touch, the absolute truth. If I breathed on Beyonce, would she begin to weep? I go to sleep. It's dark. No one breathes. You've been listening to poet Morgan Parker read from her collection, There Are More Beautiful Things Than Beyonce, just out by Tin House Books. So with regards to this this, um, enterprise of shattering uh, stereotypes Mm -hmm. around uh, black womanhood and specifically, you've, you've talked about how as a black woman writing poetry in an MFA program uh, using pop culture and humor that you were pigeonholed and that uh, what you were expected to write and who you were as an artist became flattened. And I was hoping maybe you could just unpack that for us. A little yeah, bit. definitely. I, I, it's something I really fought against when I was getting my MFA and, and it's something that was asked of me that wasn't asked of my peers. You know, I, I think, I make a joke in a poem and they're like, are you afraid of being pigeonholed as a humorous poet or a fluffy, light poet? Um, And I found that to be interesting because many poets use humor. Um, And I think, you know, in my opinion, it's, it's 
the type of humor, it's the type of references. Everyone's referencing uh, in poetry, but if I was referencing Michelangelo, no one would, you know, uh, no one would care. So I do think that there's this tension of people wanting poetry to be this sacred thing um, that exists not in the context of the world that we live in. Uh, and it, it disturbs that uh, kind of glass box uh, for me to bring Beyonce into poetry um, and demand that it be read uh, as if it were any other poem. You know, I think um, these poems are not light. They're not uh, simple. Uh, and they're not easy. And I think that it's it, folks are sometimes compelled to write them off as such uh, just because the title is funny or there's a joke about, you know, dog kibble and my loafers, like that. But to me, like, that's the best way of describing, like, a kind of loneliness, you know? And um, I would just ask for, like, more, um, just more thought, you know? And I, I think it was, it was something I had to actually request. Yeah. Um, of my peers. Well, uh, in that vein, you, you've also talked about how, because of the frequent pop uh, culture references that people will say, is this poetry? What, mm -hmm. what type of poetry is this if it is poetry? Mm -hmm. And that you feel like under that, there is a sort of a, some unexamined racism. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's part of this false sense we have of what is proper poetry, you know, what is sacred, what is, I mean... I just don't know about pastures, you know, like I just don't know about them. This is what I know about. And um, poets write about their worlds um, and this is my world. And I think that if that kind of disturbs someone's sense of what is worthy of poetry, um, then that's a question for them to think about, you know, mm -hmm. why? Um, yeah, I really do think that it's, it's easy to to call um, popular mainstream black art low art versus high art. Um, and I think that's a little bit what it is. It's, it's almost like um, I hear an undercurrent of you're, you don't belong here, you know? Like you can't bring your stuff into this space, this sacred space of poetry, of, you know, pound or whatever. Um, but... So that that's kind of what's happening, I think, and and no one would ever say it in that way. But and I don't think that that is a conscious thing that people are thinking. But I, you know, I would ask folks to consider why uh, they, you know, kind of balk at seeing pop culture handled in this way. You'd probably know more than me as a poet, but I would imagine there's plenty of examples of white poets in mm -hmm. the past who were using contemporary mm -hmm. uh, art. Frank O'Hara. T.S. Eliot, right. <laughs> you know, I mean, and the other thing is people are always say, you know, are you afraid that your work will be dated or um, it's too much in this time, like you need to remove any timestamps. But, you know, you need a whole like you need like three books to read the wasteland, you know, and figure out what was the context of what Eliot was talking about. And, you know, now we have Google and I think that people will be fine, you know? Um, so I think 
we forget that that is just the way that poetry is. There's always references to the world that the poet is living in. And if there yeah. isn't, it's probably a boring poem, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, well, you, you've said in this line also, you said that for a long time you felt like poetry's job was to make you feel small and dumb mm -hmm. and that you hated poetry most of your life that it had nothing to do with you, that the, its system of references didn't reference you mm -hmm. and, the, and the references that you have in your own life. You wrote this really great piece, Bring Your Own Canon, for the Poetry Foundation mm -hmm. blog, where you say that the secret weapon of the white supremacist patriarchy, the answer to how can another cop walk free, the reason why the term minority doesn't need to correspond with actual data, <laughs> it's in the mind. And then you say, I want to be aware of when the systems I don't trust the systems that make me afraid for my life have made their way into the way I think and how I see the world. It sounds hard, and I'm not claiming I'll be able to even spot all the ways that I have gotten into bed with the supremacy, but it sounds easier and better than losing weight, quitting smoking, online dating. <laughs> so I was hoping you could talk a little bit about your process uh, of doing this, of both breaking down references that aren't yours, but also of building up a constellation of, of references that feel alive to you mm -hmm. and building your own canon. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that was really what was at stake in the writing of this book. You know, this book is full of people, of songs, of films. Um, and I wanted to kind of say, okay, these are all of my, this is the stuff of my world. This is the aesthetic. Um, these are the influences. Um, and it felt important for me to name check a lot of things, bring them in, and present a wide picture, you know? Um, and some of the things you might guess, uh, Jet Magazine, but other things you might not, like Wife Swap, you know? It's all, it's, that's all the stuff of my life. And so it felt important for me to call those things out and um, really lay them out. I think often we, um, there's a little bit of shame that white supremacy puts on us um, where, you know, things become guilty pleasures or things become things to not talk about uh, in mixed company. And I wanted to kind of blow that out of the water and make my book a safe space to really honor all of those things mm -hmm. um, and not feel that it would be deemed anti-intellectual or anything like that. Um, and I do think that, yeah, I, I do think that the, so much of the writing... I have to remember to, like, speak to myself. Um, and it can be a scary process and, and kind of a lonely one where I'm, I'm writing, I'm referencing all these things, and, you know, maybe the folks in my MFA are saying, I don't know what this refers to, and I have to be okay with that, you know, um, right. instead of writing toward something that the white supremacist patriarchy can understand. Um, I have to be okay with them not understanding all of it. I mean, at the end of the day, it's a poem. The eternal themes of poetry are there. Love, loss, grief, you know, like it's all, uh, that will be relatable if you're a human being and want to access it. Um, well, what about the poetry canon in and of itself? Like if you're, if I imagine you building your your own poetry canon, and you did write a love letter to mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Black women poets and possibility. Uh, what, who are some of the yeah. Who are some of the poets in the Morgan Parker? Canon? Absolutely. Um, so those I that I uh, published in BuzzFeed uh, was Delana Ari Dam Dameron, um, Kimon Felix, Khadijah Queen. Who else was in there? Oh, Rio Cortez, 
Angel Nafis is my collaborator, uh, and she has a great influence on my work. Um, but there are also elder poets that I reference a lot. Um, you know, Nikki Giovanni um, is in here. Gwendolyn Brooks is a ghost in here. Um, so I'm thinking a lot about a wide variety of black women poets. And, and what's cool is to see, you know, the differences. I mean, aesthetically, uh, in terms of content, in terms of language, it's it's really exciting for me. And, I, and all of it feels true, you know. Um, so I really am interested in seeing the wide variety of ways that black women are, are representing themselves um, yeah. in poetry. Um, yeah, there are so many. It's like all my homegirls. Like, I love them all so much. <laughs> it's not often that I have a guest who's ha- who's had an uh, interview or profile on ESPN. So <laughs> yeah. I, I loved this. That was this, for my dad. Yeah. <laughs> ESPN did a profile and about the influences of, of boxing, of your grandfather who was a boxer, on your poetry. And I would love for you to describe how and in what ways your grandfather or the boxing of your grandfather becomes an influence in terms of how you write lines or uh, yeah. or what you're looking for aesthetically when you're putting together. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have to say that that surprised, I surprised myself in that interview. Um, and the I surprised the interviewer as well, you know, so we were planning on to, talking about the book and she wasn't really sure how she was going to make it fit. Yeah. Um, and she asked if I, cause I also don't watch sports. I don't engage with sports, uh, literally at all. <laughs> so, uh, but she asked if there was an athlete that I looked up to as, uh, inspiration. And one is my grandfather and he was a boxer. And I think there's, he and I have similar spirit. He was just a jokester. He was really uh, gregarious and sharp and loved talking to people and um, was very performative. And there is an attitude and a fierceness in him that I was taught from a young age. And I, you know, I see that in myself as, you know, a grown woman. And it's interesting to think about boxing. There is the fight, obviously, and there's that kind of... um, feistiness and fire in the gut, you know, and I, I think that that would describe my poetry, um, but also my personhood. I can see how that's translated. And, you know, boxing is strategic. It's, it's really intellectual, and it requires kind of circling around something and then also being super direct. And so I, that's definitely in my writing process, you know, thinking about, okay, what's the line that's going to be the KO? How do I mm. circle the subject and um, position myself in order to really knock them in the face? Um, <laughs> and, you know, how do I teach, take some punches myself in the, in the, you know, in the meantime? Yeah. So that's definitely part of my process is it is like a fight. It is like um, this choreographed um and it's violent, you know, to a certain extent. Hmm. We're talking today to poet Morgan Parker about her latest book from Tin House Books. There are more beautiful things than Beyonce. You've you've also written about growing up in mostly white environments mm-hmm. uh, in school. And in your essay, in particular, White People Love Me, dis- <laughs> Dispatches from the Token, 
You describe something you call the post-Beyonce complex. Every minute of my black girl day is doubled. I'm both erased and glorified with each Miley twerk, each time a white girl friend exclaims, girl, white teens on Twitter wearing grills, hashtag gangster. <laughs> Taylor Swift in heavy gold hoops among a chorus row of shaking black asses. The black woman is sex, inexplicable, cool, exotic, edgy, as long as she is empty, as long as she, you can hold her in your palm or drape her around your neck. Paul Mooney said, everybody wants to be black and nobody wants to be black. So I was hoping you'd, you could read your poem, Afro, mm -hmm. and then maybe talk about its origins in relationship to um, this doubling and growing up among a lot of white people. Mm -hmm. So I wrote this poem about the TSA. <laughs> so I'll start with that. Afro. I'm hiding secrets and weapons in there. Buttermilk, pancake, cardboard, boxes of purple juice, a magic word our Auntie Angela spoke into her fist and released into hot black evening like gunpowder or a cool. Forty yards of cheap wax prints, the autobiography of Malcolm X, a Zulu folktale warning against hunters drunk on polo shirts and Jägermeister, blueprints for building ergonomically perfect dancers and athletes, the chords to what would have been Michael's next song, a mule stuffed with diamonds and gold, Miss Holiday's vocal chords, the jokes Dave Chappelle's been crafting off the grid, sex and brown liquor intended for distribution at Sunday schools in white suburbs, or, in other words, exactly what a white glove might expect to find taped to my leg and swallowed down my gullet, and locked in my trunk and fogging my dirty mind and glowing like treasure in my autopsy. You just heard Afro by Morgan Parker. I, I, you said it was about the TSA, <laughs> but I, I assumed it was about a vignette that I read in one of your essays about charging some oh, of your yes, classmates to touch your hair. <laughs> I did that in college. Um, you know, it was a joke. It was like a dollar. But I think, uh, you know, I love doing things like that where I'm... Uh, making fun and pointing out what is ridiculous about my existence and, and what people make ridiculous about my existence. Um, yeah, I mean, I, around this time, uh, I had seen quite a few essays written about um, black women getting stopped by the TSA and having them, like, search through their hair. And I always say, you know, like, what are they expecting to find? Um, and, you know, there's a little bit of a magical Negro thing of it, of, you know, you, you'll find all of our black secrets in here. Right. So that's kind of, that was kind of the departure point uh, for this poem. And, of course, it turned into, okay, what do, what might the white gays think is, think are our, like, most treasured things um, that they would want to access? Um, and, you know, and... In the essay that you referenced, I'm thinking about that as well. Like, what are the parts of black culture uh, that white people are, like, so jealous of and so um, that they so desire that they dress up in it as mm -hmm. a costume? Mm -hmm. um, so it's not – it's, you know, it's just like Paul Mooney said. It's not, it's not blackness. It is um, – blackness the costume like that's the thing that they like right um and not really maybe what we have to say or uh our continued presence but the stuff of blackness 
they certainly want, you know? Um, so it's a little bit of that. Um, but there's also, you know, especially towards the end of this poem, this, the, this kind of threatening blackness uh, that will, like, contaminate um, white spaces. So that also was on my mind. What's really interesting about some of the stuff that you're doing with um, tokenism in the poetry collection and then connecting that to some of the stuff you're doing in your essays mm -hmm. around the way in which you become a token. Mm -hmm. um, and you're using Beyonce in, in, a, in a way as one to explode tokenism. You've written about the MFA experience of becoming one, but also going with your class to the Museum of Tolerance mm -hmm. and then sort of becoming an empty vessel for like white Guilt. crimes, white crimes on on the history of, mm -hmm. of 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 black people, where people come up and hug you after they go to the museum. Yes, many many a white classmate has <laughs> apologized on behalf of their ancestors. Right, and I think I mean that true moment of my life was so formative and continues to be something that I want to. I guess, investigate and mine because uh, many things are at play, right? Like, on one hand, I understand where they're coming from or they're struck with this guilt and suddenly want to uh, be absolved. Uh, and I become this, like, priest figure. <laughs> um, but also it then does... I remember it kind of making me feel like I had to say, oh, no, there's nothing to apologize for. I wasn't a slave, you know, right. but there is something. to. I mean, I write about reparations like that is I, I do believe that I am owed an apology. Yeah. But it, when it and this is something that um, I think white people in America today have a hard time with because it becomes this one on one thing. It becomes. But I'm your friend. I never did anything to you. You didn't. Whiteness did, you know, um, so yeah. and I think this kind of idea of taking it personally versus politically is difficult. Um, and yeah, I don't know. It's a it's a tough spot. What I'd love to pivot around this is that how tokenism or suffering under it essentially um, can have mental health. Uh, mm -hmm. effects and and you do link these two and in, in, in the piece tokenism may cause the following side effects mm -hmm. and, and one of them being um, you will get tired you will be loved and it will make you tired so the museum of tolerance example could mm -hmm. be one example mm -hmm. of that but you and your in your poetry you go into your own mental health struggles mm -hmm. both in your essays and in your poetry and you've also spoken a lot about mental health in relationship to black culture. Like mm -hmm. your dad was like, well, black people don't go to therapy. Mm -hmm. um, so I was w hoping you could talk a little bit about what process that was for you to decide to include um, depression and anxiety. Uh, I would imagine part of it on a, on a bigger level is exploding like a static view Absolutely. of black women, but mm -hmm. it's also a, a real ex exposing of, of mm -hmm. something mm -hmm. about yourself at the same time. Right, and I mean... If I wanted to be honest, if I wanted to present the full picture, I had to. You know, um, I don't, I don't go easy on myself in in my writing, and uh, I don't necessarily present paint the best picture of myself. That's not what it's for. Um, it's this book is not going to give me any dates anytime soon. But uh, I think it's important to really kind of show what's behind the scenes, and especially when what people see up front is so polished and. Um, considerate of them. So I, I mean, I grew up 
being diagnosed at 15 um, and completely ashamed and really secretive. You know, I would go to therapy and tell no one. You know, my friends didn't know. I'm, like, secretly taking pills. Um, and so now in my life it feels super important to just talk relentlessly about it. Um, part of that is this kind of larger stigma of talking about mental health. I think it's ridiculous, you know? <laughs> um, so that's certainly part of it, and, and I'm doing it on behalf of my past self. I'm doing it on behalf of uh, anyone who doesn't feel safe speaking about that. But secondarily, you know, as a black woman and just as a black person, it's not a conversation that we have enough. It's, we're getting better, but there definitely is a stigma, stigma in the black community about mental health. You know, I grew up and, you know, I have certain cousins, aunts, uncles, far removed that are like crazy. And I'm like, they probably have a diagnosable illness, but it's just like, oh, they yeah. just do this sometimes. I also think that it's a hard thing to talk about because there is this strong black woman stereotype, but it isn't a stereotype. Like it's real. Like we're actually extremely strong and have uh, withstood so much in our lifetimes and uh, in our past lifetimes. Um, but that doesn't mean that we can't go to therapy, you know? It's like, just because we can uh, survive it, because we always have, we know yeah. we will, does not mean that we should struggle. Um, but there is a kind of romanticism of struggle um, in the black female kind of body and in our community. So I, that's something that I struggle with negotiating um, myself. I... Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm definitely in therapy. I'm taking medicine, and I, I'm committed to my uh, to my care. But at the same time, I also know that I have this natural inclination to work myself to death, um, and that is so. That's something I wanted to, I guess, place as uh, as these kind of dichotomies that live inside of me. Maybe this is a good time to read a couple more poems. Cool. Um, I was thinking, we don't know when we were opened and the gospel according to her. We don't know when we were opened or the origin of the universe, after Micheline Thomas. A sip of liquor from a creek. Saturday, syndicated good times, bare legs, colors draped like an afterthought. We, bright enough to blind you. Dear anyone... Dear high heel metronome, white noise, hush us, shh, hush us. We're artisanal crafts, rare gems, bed of leafy bush, you call us superfood. Jeweled lips, we're rich, we're everyone. We have ideas and vaginas, history and clothes and a mother. Portrait ready American blues, palm trees and back issues of jet, pink lotion, gin on ice, Zebras, fig lipstick. One day we learned to migrate. One day we studied Mama making her face. Bright new brown, scent of Nana and cinnamon. Shadows of husbands and vineyards, records curated to our allure, incense, unconcern. Champagne is how the Xanax goes down, royal blue raining. We're begging anyone not to forget we're turned on with control. 
We better homes and gardens. We real grown. We garden of soil panties. We low hum of satisfaction. We is, 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 touch, touch, shine, a little taste. You're going to give us the love we need. The Gospel According to Her What to a slave is the 4th of July? What to a woman is a vote? What to a slave is river water? What to a slave is an award show? What to a slave is fine china? What to a woman is a canopy bed? What to a slave is a hard sky? What to a woman is please? What to a woman is the bottom of a glass? What to a slave are flat lands from an aircraft? What to a woman is permission? What to a woman is the Milky Way? What to a slave is a square? Technically, it's perfect. Been listening to poet Morgan Parker read from her collection, There Are More Beautiful Things Than Beyonce. You've said that sometimes I think my depression is the most normal thing about me. <laughs> we should all get free therapy. We could call it reparations. But in other places, you've also said that it is hard to find therapy that is actually a tool for a black person's liberation. And that made me think of that really uh, harrowing scene in, in Claudia Rankin's Citizen mm-hmm. when, when she on the phone makes an appointment with a trauma therapist and then shows up, <laughs> shows up at the trauma therapist's door and knocks and the woman comes out and screams for her to get off her lawn, mm-hmm. unable to conceive that her patient seeking trauma therapy would be black or that a black person would be uh, on her property. Um, <laughs> can you talk a little bit about this, this question of both maybe uh, self-interrogation within black culture around seeking mental health, but then maybe that the infrastructure isn't really there for yeah. for the right type of uh, engagement. It's hard. I mean, I uh, lately have picked up this new nickname of Therapy Yelp because I'm, I um, am known for helping people try to find a therapist, and I think so uh, so many of us just don't go because it seems daunting and all the therapists we can imagine are like on the Upper West Side and don't look like us and probably don't understand our problems, yeah. um, especially if what you need to talk about, which everyone should, is the way that white supremacy kind of wreaks havoc on your mind and body on a regular basis. You know, that's totally linked to everything. Um, so... I, I had a really bad experience with with a therapist. She was good otherwise, but I kind of around that time was realizing how closely linked um, America and America's history, but also present. Uh, This was around the time of Ferguson, and I really felt that as closely linked to what I was experiencing on a day-to-day basis and with my depression. Um, And I had never really been able to articulate that in such a clear way before. And uh, the therapist kind of couldn't handle it. Um, She was like, what's going on in Ferguson, Missouri? I've never heard about this. And, you know, that was disturbing to me. Uh, she said she didn't have a TV, but I'm like, who are you around? That That is not, you know? Um, so, And that was scary to me. That yeah. was scary because then I was, I didn't feel safe. Uh, I didn't feel like she could help me. Um, I then, then I also was like, are you a white supremacist? Because how was how no one around you clued you in? Um, and And also, why aren't you looking it up? 
you know, like what is what's going on here? So that was a, a kind of a scary thing. And and uh, when I broke up with her, which I had to do, she made it very awkward. And and I was like, you know, I really need to talk about culture and how it is affecting me. And she was like, well, why didn't you find a therapist of color? And I was like, hey, like, what? <laughs> I didn't really realize that I wanted to spend so much time talking about this, but also um, it's hard. And so now I, I do think about that. And I also, you know, when I'm looking for, for new therapists. I, I make sure to uh, make a note that I need someone that's like culturally sensitive to specifically to the traumas that I have as a black woman. Um, and, you know, it's a hard thing because it just isn't a field that we dominate. And I, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, there's something that needs to be done on the level of education probably um, so that more black women can become psychiatrists. Um, right. there, there are more certainly that are therapists. I also need medication management, so it is nice to have a psychiatrist who can do all those things, and it's really hard to find, and I live in New York. There's a lot of therapists there, <laughs> um, and it's still hard, yeah. you know, and it's really expensive, and, you know, yeah, I, I don't know. It's, it's, a, it's a big problem, um, and I think it's, it's a problem because there's so much that First of all, there's no space that isn't um, kind of contaminated by white supremacy. So ideally, therapy would be that space where you can kind of try to not be focused on the white gaze or not be focused on that, you know, quadruple translation uh, in order to just talk about mm -hmm. your life. Um, I have a therapist who's a woman of color. She's great about that um, and seeks to understand and uh is clear about what she doesn't understand, is clear about what she does, um, and listens, you know? Yeah. So, and, and that makes a big difference. But it is hard to find, and it, it is hard uh, even to remember, you know, for me, not to be kind of performing for white supremacy, even in the space of, of therapy. Mm. Well, it's interesting with you broadening the context of depression from something individual from something wrong with brain chemistry to, to something political and social and potentially a normal response for mm -hmm. uh, inescapable pressures of marginalized people. Absolutely. Um, you also do this with love and loneliness in, in this collection too, I think. You quote a line from Amiri Baraka's poem, Black Art, that says, let there be no love poems written until love can exist freely and cleanly. It feels like your collection is in kindred spirit with this statement? Mm -hmm, Does that seem mm -hmm. like it to you? Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess while I was writing this, it became super clear to me that loneliness is also, I mean, I think I asked the question in the book, is loneliness cultural? Because it does feel, uh, you know, encircling what it feels like to be a black woman, it, it's lonely. And I think that this uh, distance from love and intimacy is built into all the other things, how we're looked at, how we're perceived. Um, and again, that's something that I'm working through on a personal level, but, you know, then seeing as a larger thing. Uh, so same with depression. It's like, yes, do I, you know, need 
what is it like serotonin? Like, am I missing that? And but also, um, what are the other factors at play? And really, just kind of seeing the the whole picture. Um, I think that this book is a very lonely one, as as much as it is full of people and experiences and joy and celebration. Um, there, there's kind of a sense of going home alone at the end of the night. There, that's kind of hovering in in the book. Um, the speaker is often amongst folks, but the the kind of utterance of the poem always kind of comes in quiet and aloneness. Mm. Um, so it's about, I mean, it's about isolation. It's it's about uh, being misunderstood and not seen fully. Uh, and that's all really lonely. And it, it's hard to connect on an intimate level um, and not just a social level, you know, um, when that is your experience walking through the world. It's, it's almost like we're kind of led to, well, there's also, you know, we're led to believe that we're not lovable. Uh, so we almost kind of enact that um, and internalize that and make it our problem, mm-hmm. you know. Is it a stretch to, I imagine that your background in anthropology is part of... It's very everywhere. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I imagine that's part of the impulse of taking either depression and anxiety or loneliness away from the individual and sort of placing it in the collective and also ex- examining the health of the community or the mm-hmm, uh, health mm-hmm. of the larger group. Is, is yeah. that is that from that background as an anthropologist? I think so. I mean, I can't, you don't know what comes first, right? Like I've, right. I've always been a person that is interested in like systems and uh, I don't know, just very nerdy in terms of like, why do we do this? Why do we think what we think? And um, I think that is just like my natural impulse, which led me to anthropology. Um, I'm just nosy and endlessly like curious about people. Um which is why I, you know, really took to anthro. And I, I think that, um, to me, it's a similar similar field to writing um, or it's a similar part of my brain that I'm using. And I, you know, I also have spent enough time kind of interrogating myself and I'm good on that front, <laughs> you know? I, I think I understand on an individual level why I am how I am, um, but it's time to kind of take take a wider scope and think about um, what made me uh, who I am before I was even born. Mm-hmm. And I think that kind of was a little bit of, and that's certainly, you know, the work that I'm working on now is, is even more so. You know, um, this book is uh, really kind of looking around instead of inside of the the speaker. Um, and that felt like an important move for me and for my work. And I, I think that's, that's certainly there of thinking about, okay, what are our customs? What are our, again, like, what are our aesthetics? What are our, um, our canons of, you know, what are our influences, references? Um, how do we speak to each other? How do we speak to outsiders? Uh, how do we love? Do we love? You know, these types of questions are, are in, are in the book. And I think I had already answered the question of how do I do that stuff? But really thinking about a more kind of group think and, and collective <laughs> type of uh, experience. Well, uh, speaking of group think, you, you also critique this idea in, in multiple essays, including some that we mentioned, but also in I Don't Need Diverse Books. 
the idea that when one of us wins, we all win. Mm -hmm. And that makes me think of President Obama becoming president uh, in relation to the state of the black community at large. Oh, yeah. And then, and also to your poem, uh, the president has never said the word black, which was the first time I encountered your poetry, which in New York Times oh, Magazine right. when um, Matthew Sapruder put it in, in the New York Times. Thanks, Matthew. <laughs> uh, so I was hoping you could read that poem Absolutely. The president has never said the word black. To the extent that one begins to wonder if he is broken, it is not so difficult to open teeth and brass taxes. The president is all like, Five on the bleep hand side. The president be like, we lost a young boy today. The pursuit of happiness is guaranteed for all fellow Americans. He is nobody special like us. He says, brothers and sisters. What kind of bodies are movable and feasts? What color are visions? When he opens his mouth, a chameleon is inside, starving. I remember when this poem came out in, in the New York Times Magazine, you saying, um, and it was at a time when Trump, no one thought Trump would be president, but he was on the rise. Like he was, maybe people, some people thought he could be president, but he was definitely um, on the ascendant. And you'd said it felt weird to be calling out Obama in that climate. Sure. While at the same time, you stood by every word in the poem. Oh, yeah, yes. absolutely. I mean, this is a book of contradictions, you know, and, and that's important to it. It's a it's a book of giving the whole picture even when one, I mean, presenting something in a one-sided way isn't fair. It isn't doing justice, you know, and I think that this is kind of a critique of President Obama that a lot of black people had, and I love the hell out of him, you know, but, and it doesn't change, at this point, I'm like, he is a, literally Jesus Christ, because there's, the alternative is crazy, but I right. think, um, I think that it's, it's a complicated thing, right, and, and part of, part of that poem is talking about how complicated it is to, uh, critique that, because we understand it, you know, um, I think, it's not necessarily about what is authentic black or is he black enough. I think it's more along the lines of, okay, you're representing us, but you're also not. Like, you're not speaking uh, on behalf of us the way that you can't, you could. Uh, but we also know why he's not doing that. Right. Um, and, and it is a way of protecting himself and protecting us. So I think, you know, this was a hard poem for me to write because of all those things and because I understand both sides of it, but it also felt important to to kind of get out and try to articulate. Um, that chameleon is doing a lot of work where it's like, we understand uh, what that feels like. We understand what it, what it feels like to kind of repress and, and keep quiet, um, and why, and why we do that, you know? Yeah. Um, so it's no, yeah, I mean, I, I really do think it's, it's a critique, but it's also, um, it's a, it's a sympathetic one. Mm -hmm. And do you feel like your writing has or will change since Trump is in power in the sense that I mean, we don't have a, a the typical white president in power. We now have like a, an entire, no. like all, all uh, bets are off, it seems like at this point. Yep. Uh, I don't, I'm not interested in writing about him <laughs> for sure. Uh, I, I do 
not think that my writing will change. I think that I'll still be tackling the same things. Um, I, you know, in this book was pushing myself to to not be shy and to not be afraid and and really put out what is painful. And I've only started, I've only done that more, you know. So I, I think I see, I see the threat. I see uh, the threat against my life and how much time I'll have. And so I'm like, before they lock me up as a political prisoner in T minus, you know, let me get out everything that I need to say. Uh, I'm, you won't catch me like wasting any time. So I, I, I guess that's really the energy and, and, um, I guess urgency around what I'm writing has kind of, um, just increased. And I remember showing a friend, uh, some newer poems and they said, oh, you're not interested in being charming anymore. <laughs> and I think it's, you know, it's like I'm out of right. time uh, for being charming, for taking care of the reader. Uh, it's more like just figure it out and, you know, process this on your own. Yeah. Um, so I, I, maybe that's good. I don't know. <laughs> well, speaking of like the, the present hostile moment, mm-hmm. you, you've, you've talked a lot about Afrofuturism. Mm-hmm as a response to a, a hostile present moment, particularly if, as a feminist response to mm-hmm, the, mm-hmm. a hostile present moment. And there's hints of Afro-futurism Afro, uh, in, in some of the poems. I think of slouching toward Beyonce as mm-hmm, one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so could you talk a little bit about it? Um, yeah, about I mean... how you see it in relationship to black womanhood? Yeah, I think that, you know, one thing that black women are good at doing, and I saw somewhere on the internet the other day someone saying that Harriet Tubman was the first... Uh, Afrofuturist, which makes sense. I mean, the, one of the things that we do and are good at doing is creating a, a space, saying, oh, I don't like this. This isn't working for me. But that that doesn't mean I'm just going to go away. You know, um, let me find a space for myself um, and for my people. So I, I, there's that kind of resilience and that kind of um, just scrappy, like, troubleshooting that we're really good at. And... Uh, yeah, I, I I always say, you know, Harriet Tubman was the first one of us to just be like, oh, no, this is, this will not stand. <laughs> you know, like, I'm not doing this. Um, and so there's a little bit of that. Uh, there's a little bit of this knowledge in the back of our minds or uh, in our unconscious that we will be okay and we will uh, take care of ourselves and that this has never felt like home. So I think it. we're not surprised when people say, this isn't your home and you don't belong here. We're like, I know. <laughs> like We're just trying to figure out the portal <laughs> to get back um, yeah. or forward or wherever, you know. Um, so, and that is very feminist, you know, this kind of self-reliance um, and innovation and inventiveness about existence, uh, living in the world, but also not of it. Um, I think that's really important to kind of our identities and, and that's who we are in wartime. Hmm. Can we hear slouching toward Beyonce? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I should say that I, I wrote this poem uh, in response to some artwork uh, that my friend Jessica Rankin wrote, and it was very kind of celestial um, work. 
So you'll see that. Slouching toward Beyonce, who reads her horoscope in secret and bathes her loose strings in holy watercolor, cucumbers over the temple. Her body is like mine. It is filled with holes. It starts black and stays black. I keep thinking the only city left is outer space, where we lived before we had tongues. Things don't fall apart. They find new homes. Down here, there's a thing called skin. I keep mine clean. There are things called medication and days. They are hard to believe. I am tired, so I wife myself. Down here, the boys are theoretical. I shrink their hearts. I say spells because I'm magic. Fire is another word for absolute sunset on a high cliff. I am never afraid to jump. Oh, Beyonce, I love you. Your fragments like a map. I think I am addicted. You soaked blue. You trouble in my sight. The beast has come at last. Hair of a cattail and legs of a palm. The truth like a bowl of seeds. The secret album, Midnight. Oh, vessel of womanhood, I am loosed upon the world with dust and filed nails. All my life I turn water into wine. This the hour I lower my shoulders. My second coming. Split screen, clouds like orchid bulbs in the throat. We've been listening to poet Morgan Parker read from her new collection, There Are More Beautiful Things Than Beyonce. I was curious about you as an editor at Little A, mm-hmm. and you're not an editor of poetry, you're an editor of fiction. I do. I am an editor of poetry, fiction, oh, and, and, poetry. and nonfiction, yeah. actually. So, so I'm working on a novel, a memoir, and two poetry books, yeah. How, how, were you, how are your tastes in fiction, in the world of prose, mm. when you're, when you're uh, looking in through the editor lens? Yeah, um, I, I mean, all of my authors are women, so let's start there. Uh, they're all women of color except for one. Um, so that telling women's stories and uh, centering women's voices is important to me uh, as an editor and writer. So that is one obvious. Um, I, you know, I love fiction. I love novels. I've never written one. Uh, it would be cool too, but I d- currently don't have the patience. Um, but I, I have loved working um, on prose and thinking about narrative, you know, I think that's something that is underneath my poems, uh, more conceptually than, than, uh, you know, technically I, there, I wouldn't call my poems narrative poems, but I am interested in narrative as a concept, um, just in the world, in the way that we conceive of ourselves and conceive of, um, our lives. So I'm, I am very interested in, um, stories that explore very deeply individual narratives and contextualize them, uh, within a larger Hmm. space. Well, when you say that you would be interested in writing a novel, but you don't have the patience, is it not true that you're writing a a YA novel? That's what I'm saying. That's what you're saying? It is. I don't have a draft. So, I still do not know how to write a novel. I am making it up as I go. (laughs) Let me ask you a question on that line, because you've said before that poetry is more in line with the way our brains work. Mm -hmm. 
that we don't think in sentences, but rather leaping from memory to image to thought. So uh, is the Morgan Parker that appears when you're writing prose in sentences a different sort of Mor Morgan Parker? Are you recognizing a different, a, a different persona in that? Um, no, quite the opposite, actually. I think even in the way of, you know, fighting against my own inclination and, and putting things into like a chronological narrative uh, story and, and relying on sentences and uh, linear time, I'm finding the same Morgan, you know, it's, it's a very similar thing. Um, and I mean, my, my young adult novel is, is a loosely based memoir. So mm -hmm. as you can imagine, our heroine Morgan, because I have no imagination <laughs> is, you know, uh, growing up depressed black in a very white suburb, uh, that's super religious and, and, you know, her hijinks ensue. Yeah. Uh, so that's really it. And, and I'm finding it to be a really interesting way of um, fictionalizing a lot of what I'm talking about in my poetry and essays and, and uttering a lot of the, s the same things, but in using different words, mm -hmm. um, which has been funny to see. You know, I didn't really expect that. And, and then a line will come out that I think, you know, that very well could be in an essay. Um, well, I must say that I, I hope that you will collect your essays at some point. They're, they're really incredible. And I would you. encourage people to seek them out online because, but I would hope that might be a future, a future well, prose book for you too. Listen, you and my agent are colluding because <laughs> <laughs> he's out here telling people that I'm writing many books. But, yeah. <laughs> um, well, thank was, you for that. It was great having you on between the covers today. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate it. We were talking today to poet. Morgan Parker about her latest collection from Ten House Books, There Are More Beautiful Things Than Beyonce. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO. Volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. If you enjoyed today's program, consider supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash between the covers. And also while you're there, check out the growing archive of bonus material available. Thanks for listening.